This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, that's how J.P. Morgan might feel now. This is a fascinating story. It's among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today. J.P. Morgan's secret punishment. Amazing that this was kept under wraps. Michelle Davis is finance reporter at Bloomberg News from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Michelle, tell us about this one. Uh, read it you know, early this morning and just kind of blown away. What was going on with J.P. Morgan and the government? So, yeah, this one was really fun to report out. Um, You know, everyone knows that after the financial crisis, big banks, particularly J.P. Morgan, were in the penalty box for a variety of compliance issues and missteps. And and there were a lot of, you know, penalties and fines that were made public. Um, But what a lot of people don't know is that behind the scenes, regulators at the OCC were secretly or kind of, you know, under wraps uh, just – constraining the bank's ability to do some of the things it wanted to. One of those was uh, opening branches in new states. And um, so, you know, once those regulators left, uh, it seems like, based on what we've been hearing, uh, J.P. Morgan and its regulators were able to come to new understandings, and that helped pave the way for this, this national expansion thereon. So, Michelle, one of the questions that jumped to mind when I was reading this was that Part of the criticism that's been leveled at regulators and politicians, for that matter, is that the banks weren't punished enough you know, for their uh, misdeeds, as it were, uh, leading up to the financial crisis. This feels like a pretty severe punishment. Why wouldn't they tell people about it? Why do <laughs> exactly. this in secret? I mean, it's a really good question. Uh, I wish I had an answer for you. Some people have said that you know, regulators – do tend to, when they do things that are uh, someone describe as arbitrary, like if they're not, you know, saying that, you know, this ban is because of what you did right. for London Whale, that's when they would, they would use an enforcement like this. And that's perhaps why they, uh, you know, didn't make it public. It yeah, could also just be because it was, you know, informal. But it's amazing. So much stuff leaks out. And you would think at some point sooner than more than 10 years after the financial crisis, Michelle, that this would have come out. Can we make the jump that this was going on? Maybe there were other secret punishments going on at other firms? Well, there are definitely, you know, private conversations that happen between banks and their regulators every day. Um, Enforcement and supervision is, you know, very different and day-to-day than specific rules would would show. Uh, And I do have evidence to say that it wasn't just J.P. Morgan that, you know, may have been affected by restrictions like this, but uh, I don't don't know if we can make the the jump that it was, you know, everyone. Right. And and so here we are 10 years on, and Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, has been very public about the fact of he's been waiting to really get going uh, with this expansion. Tell us what they're doing. You follow this bank as closely as anyone day to day. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I find it pretty fascinating. If you if you look at what they're doing right now, they are in January they announced plans to expand their branch network, basically go into at least twenty uh, new markets over the next five years. That means opening four hundred branches. They're currently only in twenty three states, which I was surprised to find yeah. because 
yeah, it's less than half the country. Um, and when you look at, you know, the rhetoric around why they're expanding and how they're expanding, um, like you look at what J- Jamie Dimon said on the, th- on the third quarter earnings day. He said, you know, we thank smart regulatory policy for being able to expand. It's almost as if he was speaking in code this whole time. And, and once you know the backstory at all, it makes a lot more sense. Is it fair, too, to make some kind of conclusion, Michelle, about kind of the, the difference between what was going on kind of after the crisis, um, the Obama administration, if you will, in terms of uh, policy towards the nation's banks versus a Trump administration? Well, so I think there are definitely two things going on here. One is that J.P. Morgan definitely has resolved a lot of its compliance issues, which, you know, on one hand would pave the way for something like this. But on the other hand, uh, there is you know, there are various things that we can point to that show that the current regulators picked by Trump have shown, you know, more more flexibility or more willingness to listen to banks when it comes to regulatory issues. And these are things that I've been told, you know, are different just in the sense that in the prior administration, regulators weren't even op- willing to have conversations about certain things. And now yeah. those conversations are on the table. It, it, it is funny, too, to think about kind of the rhetoric that's been going back and forth between Jamie Dimon uh, and President Trump. <laughs> and you, you start to realize why uh, maybe Jamie Dimon thinks that you know, insults he may level at the president might not be in his best interest if all of a sudden he's getting some uh, regulatory relief, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's totally true. All right. Uh, Michelle Davis, finance reporter for Bloomberg, uh, covering the day-to-day workings of J.P. Morgan, among others, joining us from our bureau down in Washington, uh, D.C. Carol, really interesting story. Second most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. So it's really just kind of stayed up there. This is what uh, folks are reading. In a day when we've got, you know, stocks we're selling off, we're certainly off our lows of the session. Going to watch some of those names into the closing bell. Curious to see how this week ends up. I think it'll ultimately be another down week. and It'll be the fourth down week out of five uh, for the S&P 500. But uh, we'll see. Well, and, you know, obviously how banks do is going to be a big question going forward. This regulatory question has been very much on the minds of everyone in the banks, but also investors who own them. This is Bloomberg Business Week. So that is that has the clubhouse lead for best uh, song intro <laughs> score uh, for the day. Uh, hat tip to Paul Brennan for that. Uh, Caleb Melby is with us. He is financial investigations reporter here at Bloomberg, joining Carol and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Caleb, you've got one of the must-read stories of the week. It is featured prominently in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's about Tom Barrick, uh, a guy familiar to a lot in the world that Bloomberg tracks so closely, an intimate of the president of sorts. Mm -hmm. Uh, What'd you find out? Yeah, so uh, I tried to look at everything from when uh, Trump announced his candidacy to the present to kind of track um, what Barrick's been up to these last few years. Um, And uh, surprisingly, they've been a really tough few years for Tom Barrick. Um, uh, His... Most notably, his company went through a really, really tough merger, and shares are actually down 60% um, since January 2017. And let's remind folks who Tom Barrick is. Colony Capital, of course, prominent real estate investor from around the world, goes back to early days of investing in the Middle East. He uh, then signs on with Bob Bass, does some 
pretty blockbuster real estate transactions. Right. In doing so, he starts to deal with Donald Trump yeah. from a business perspective. Yeah. They He sells him the Plaza Hotel. Yeah, right? yeah. So their relationship goes all the way back to the 1980s when he was working for Bob Bass. Bob Bass sold Trump uh, his stake in Alexander's, um, which is where this building stands today. And yeah, and then uh, Tom really cut his teeth in a tremendous deal where he uh, both negotiated the purchase of the Plaza Hotel and then within a year... Uh, resold it to Trump uh, at like a $50 million margin. And that was a deal that uh, really made him famous and and kind of helped improve his mettle to to Bob Bass. Well, two things there, showing that he's a successful business guy, right? He's got a REIT. I know it's down a lot, but it's still about a $2.8 billion REIT. But it also shows where he kind of hooked up with Donald Trump. And they have kind of remained friends over the years. And then, of course, we know Tom Barrett got very involved with the Trump campaign very. and really front and center out there when it came to uh, media. Yes, absolutely. Tom Tom really was. There was two major money guys in the Trump campaign, uh, Tom and uh, and then Steve Mnuchin, who is mm-hmm. now uh, Treasury Secretary. Uh, but Tom was the first one. And he, uh, he took the dip all the way back in late February 2016. That was before Super Tuesday, uh, before Trump had the nomination locked up. And he really took it on, uh, both selling Trump uh, to Wall Street and selling Trump internationally. When people were still saying, ah, this isn't going to happen, right? He, right? he kind of came out and said, yeah, I yeah. see it. And uh, and as listeners of Bloomberg Radio and watchers of Bloomberg TV know, Tom is the sort of guy who can instill a lot of confidence yeah. in in somebody like Trump. He he talks and, and you listen. He's an unbelievable salesman, and he took that skill to the floor or to the stage, I should say, of the Republican National Convention. He was the introducer of the introducer, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember so vividly him stalking the stage. You know, a handheld microphone, really performing for the crowd, introducing Ivanka Trump, who then, you know, introduced her father as the nominee uh, for the Republican Party. Then he goes on to chair the inauguration committee. And that's where the story starts to take even some more interesting turns, right? Yeah, well, yeah. So, I mean, he raised a record-setting sum as chairman of the inaugural committee. um, And that's around the same time uh, uh, Trump's making his cabinet appointments. Um, And at this time, Barrick Barrick makes it known that he'd be happy to be a presidential envoy to the Middle East, where he'd he'd have um, uh, sort of a broad mandate to oversee policy there. And that doesn't quite come together for him. And then, of course, a few months later, we see start to see some dramatic shifts in how American foreign policy is playing out in the Middle East. And that really comes to harm some some of Barrick's closest friends in the Middle East, which is the Qatari royal family, um, who are put behind a blockade uh, by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and other uh, Gulf countries. Because Barrick plays a key role for Trump in really making a lot of those introductions, because right. as we mentioned, he was one of the first investors to really start to gather up some serious money um, from the Middle East. And all of a sudden, then he finds himself with his buddy Donald Trump kind (laughs) of going the other way in in the region and alienating people who have helped make Tom Barrick Barrick very rich and vice versa. It's Barrick saying, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> in some ways, he was almost too successful in what he set out to do during the campaign. He made an introduction uh, between then Deputy Crown Prince, now Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and Jared Kushner. And the two of them hit it off really well. And at that point in time, Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman are having conversations about how policy should play out in the Middle East uh, without Barrick. And uh, that comes back to haunt. So has Barrick been kind of, you know, squeezed out? 
out of the Trump administration? I mean, I know he was, in, you know, in par- responsible for the inauguration and mm-hmm. putting all of that together. But has he been kind of squeezed out? Is he still a fr- FOT, friend of Trump? <laughs> or is this self-imposed? Because we've heard yeah. varying reports, That's right? right. Yeah, That's so, right. So, so he, he says he never expected to be kept in the loop, right? He's very happy to just help create these networks. All these people can benefit from talking to each other. He doesn't need to be involved. Uh, he's still the sort of person who can call up Trump on one of Trump's phones that we read about earlier in the week in the New York Times and, and uh, have a conversation with him. But he's always said he can give advice to the president and the president can take it or leave it. And this this blockade is not something that he would have advocated for. One thing we have to mention, too, is, you know, Tom Barrick has been associated with Paul Manafort and yes. Rick Gates, two figures who have come prominently into the Mueller investigation. Yeah. Um, so he and Manafort actually go about as far back as Barrick in the Middle East do, back to like the 70s and, and 80s. And um, he helped install Manafort as head of uh, Trump's campaign. Uh, in this story, we report for the first time that around the same time as a favorite in Manafort, you were talking about friends of Trump. Friends of Tom is also a thing. He hires a, a friend of Manafort's into Colony, um, um, as as a favor uh, to Manafort, so you see you see these linkages with with Manafort, Manafort's uh, deputy Gates. Uh, Tom also hired for a brief period of time before he was indicted, and then and then he was subsequently fired. Can it, I just say it's a great read? It and, is and a just, phenomenal read. It really well is. well done. Yeah, great story. Great story. <laughs> Caleb Melby, uh, his story, Trump Money Man. Tom Barrick is still waiting for his windfall. It is featured in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We had it, Carol and I got to have another yeah. conversation uh, with Caleb about this story. You can listen to that on our Bloomberg Radio Weekend Show and see it on our Bloomberg Business Week Weekend Show. Some more interesting details. All right. Well, and as we await that let's get back to one of the big stories that people are, have been looking at over the past couple of days and that is tech earnings and we are delighted one of our favorites dina bash she's seattle bureau chief all the way here on the other side of the country joining us carol and myself in our bloomberg interactive broker studio dina great to have you with us so tell us what's happening amazon and alphabet really Surprise people, not in a good way, uh, yesterday with their earnings. What do you make of it? Yeah, you know, I mean, both of them, it's funny because often people in the tech world look to both of those as a, a barometer for how the cloud is going. But actually, the problems in both was in, were in other areas in their main business. Amazon gave a forecast for Christmas that did not make people think lots of people were going to be sending Santa gifts from Amazon. Um, and uh, Google's main search advertising business was slowing. I, you know, they did, obviously, both of them talked about their cloud businesses, but it seemed that the, the non-tech businesses were the, or, well, Google's is still tech, but the non-cloud businesses were the issue for both of them. It's interesting, too, if you look at the trade. I mean, Google was actually up a percent at one point during today's session, down about 5.6% at its lows. It's now still down about 2.6%. Um, is there, yeah, is there anything more we can read into these reports? I think about Amazon. Does it say something about the consumer? Does it say something more about, you know, the economy more broadly? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that it does. I think the Amazon's expectations have gotten so high. Yeah. And so at this point, so that the 
stock just dropped so it's no longer the second most valuable co- uh, company in the country. It's Forward-looking the PE of 89. Sure. But, you know, <laughs> I think a, the more macro question for me on Google is this. The search advertising market that they created and dominated is massive, and it's been their, their you know, generator, their engine for years. Is there a point where that starts to run out? I, I don't know, and I think their cloud business is then that, that bet of, you know, can that be a next act for them? And f- they've been in third, according to some people, fourth place in the cloud infrastructure mm-hmm. services market. When Behind you look at Amazon and... Amazon, Microsoft, and ah. some, some folks have Alibaba above them, obviously mostly concentrated in China, but they're either third or fourth. And their growth rate, despite the fact that they're smaller, is slower than Microsoft's at number two. And so I think that has to be a concern if you're wondering, well, what's Google's next act? Is it, is it going to be this cloud business? Well, let's talk about Microsoft for a second because, and I'm not saying this just to flatter you because you're sitting in front of us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, you, you literally know more about Microsoft than any other journalist that I've ever encountered in my life. So what is it about where Microsoft is now that may be new and different because I do the Investors reacted very positively to, to their results. Are we seeing a resurgent Microsoft at this I point? I think so. I think what we've seen is Microsoft invest very smartly and execute well in cloud. Five, six, eight years ago when they were having trouble, it was on the execution side. They had this this rap that they weren't innovating. Actually, it was almost a more disturbing issue. They often knew exactly where the market was going and then spectacularly failed to execute. Just couldn't get there. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other interesting thing that we see from investors that's changed is people use Used to groan if Microsoft spent money, if they bought a company. It was just, you knew it was not going to go the way you wanted. Now, if they get up and say, we're spending billions of dollars building data centers, Wall Street kind of yawns and says, or, or is excited because they know that they're, they'd only do that if they had the cloud business coming in. So there's a very positive sentiment around them right now. And so is this Nadella? Is this the Nadella Microsoft versus Ballmer Microsoft? What's I going on? I think so. Although I think that, you know, when you look at cloud, you, you do have to give Steve Ballmer credit for, for seeing that. That market going into it earlier than some of his customers wanted him to. Ah. And in fact, actually putting Satya Nadella in charge of that cloud business, replacing another executive who wanted to move more slowly. So I think there was some Steve Ballmer judgment that this was going to be important. But if you go back to, you know, 2012 or so, everyone thought Google would be the number two. Google would be the challenger to AWS. It's turned out exactly the opposite. And it does, it does bear thinking why it is that Microsoft positioned itself better. You know, it's interesting, too. Explain to me, in terms of Microsoft's role in the cloud, is it software that they're providing that's the big thing, or no? Are they doing the same thing that Amazon's doing? Um, both Amazon and Microsoft provide, essentially, software services. They okay. build data centers, they run services out of it. Now, I think that's the, the other narrative coming out of earnings, though, is what happens to the companies that are selling hardware for these cloud right. data centers. Yeah. And you saw some of them see declines, among them Western Digital, because even though the cloud business is going gangbusters for Microsoft and Amazon, there's this sense that the build-out of these data centers where you put all of these servers in order to run the cloud services, that that's starting to slow down. And so the, the folks that make the equipment that goes, in, the, that goes right. in those data centers, they are seeing concern about whether their own sales will slow. So what else should we be looking for as tech earnings continue to come out? Intel, obviously, very good numbers. We talked a little bit about that after the close uh, yesterday. Who else should uh, we be keeping week? an eye on? Apple, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the one everybody, everybody watches for. And particularly, I think, you know, when we talk about Christmas demand for, for tech, I think that's, you know, one, one to watch. What do they say about how many 
people are going to be buying iPhones and iPads at Christmas. All right. We're going to leave it there. Um, Dina, thank you so much. So great to have you in studio and really wrap up uh, all of these tech uh, earnings. Dina Bass and her team have been really following that tech group uh, for us here at Bloomberg. She's Seattle Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, but uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Who takes every kind of people? Yes, indeed, it does take all kinds of people. Diversity, and that's certainly something that our next guest uh, takes into account when putting together an investment portfolio. Glenn Argenbright is founding partner at the venture capital firm Quake Capital. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Hey, nice to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to go right to it because you do have a diverse portfolio, and that means uh, you are investing in a lot of female-founded companies. Um, Tell us a little bit about how many, why you're doing it, and uh, I am curious about performance among these female-run entities. Sure. So about 30% of our portfolio is actually female-founded. 30%. Yeah. Um, All early stage. Uh, We were actually recently ranked as the second leading seed investor for female founders worldwide. Um, We've got, we just finished a class. We we do our investments in batches. We just had um, 16 companies come through. And out of that, we had uh, six of the founders were female founders. Why it, female? No, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, it just works out. It's, it's funny no, but you I mean, ask. Do you make a conscious effort when you're looking for opportunities to say, I want to find some female-founded businesses, and I want to put some money into them? You know, that's a great question. We get a lot. Um, people really wonder if we have some special process. What we actually do is get out of our own way. So we, the metrics will really take care of themselves if you focus on the merit. And that's a big key for us. So we focus on merit. Um, we have a very anonymous process when we're actually building the portfolio, doing our due diligence. And we focus on traction, heavily on traction and performance. And I, I want to get into this idea of investing in, as a class. It's so interesting that that's the process. Tell us why uh, you do that. It allows us – so a couple different pieces. It allows us to go through an awful lot of um, – of deal flow. So we look at an awful lot of companies. We look at about 500 to 1,000 investments every month. We take on about 500 to 1,000 yeah. a month? Yeah. We how, only, do you, how do you do that, though? Uh, so we, it's a combination of artificial intelligence and human um, performance. So we've got about 17 people involved in our deal review. And then we've got an artificial intelligence component that we use to actually help us vet the deals, which is also why we end up with such great diversity because the AI doesn't care. It's so funny that you say that. There was a Bloomberg Business Week story that's talked about um, investors using a lot more AI and that it says it also makes it possible to then invest in a lot more deals because the cost of kind of filtering through companies because you have AI doing it, um, a smaller investment that may only pay off a little bit, you still get a payoff, but you didn't, you didn't have to put so much time into it. And the elimination of bias, that's yes. really, really interesting, too. Yeah. Really efficient, um, really fair. And you asked earlier about performance. I mean, without touting us, we're doing our fund, you know, typical IRR in our space, about 20%. We're at 36% net IRR. So I would say the results actually tell you that that focusing on merit and getting the right balance of diversity and, and ownership helps. We get all sorts of reports, I I feel like, Glenn, around there's too much venture capital, there's not enough venture capital, there's too much of this type, (laughs) there's too little of this type. Like, where, in in terms of where you're investing, what's the competitive set and and what's the money flow like? 
That's, uh, you know, it's really interesting. We see a lot of teams when they do really well, they start out in early stage. And I think, you know, there's some articles lately about there's more capital going into VC, but fewer deals getting done. Right. Mm. What you're really seeing is a shift away from early stage into later stage, which is a fairly natural component. If a team starts out, does early stage, does well, it transitions into later stage because it's easier to deploy large checks. Right. So what we end up having is sort of a gap in the market at the early stage level which is exactly where we play. It creates opportunity for us. But I think it's also where that AI comes in again. The, the efficiency allows you to stay there, mm-hmm. deploy smaller checks, do it rapidly, look at a lot of deal flow. So I think these advancements in technology also are going to help uh, as we try and get more uh, capital into early stage. My understanding is you're kind of industry agnostic when it mm-hmm. comes to investments. So you're just like you said, you're investing on merit and so on and so forth. The wave of startups, though, that are coming before you and presented to you, are we seeing any kind of interesting trends? Yeah, definitely. There's a few things I think that are great right now. We're seeing uh, artificial intelligence coming across a lot, machine learning, computer vision. These are areas that are really transforming whole industries. The other thing we're seeing is uh, a lot of platform, um, stuff that's built on top of existing platforms, which allows them to move much faster. So, uh, in fact, if you think about it, Uber effectively came in on top of mobile and GPS, and that gave them the ability to leapfrog an entire entrenched industry. You're seeing high school and college kids doing this day and night. Right, because um, it's all there. We can't let you go. What, we got 30, 40 seconds. Ask them. New York. <laughs> Why New York? Why New York? <laughs> Just got about 40 seconds. Okay, you say so New York's a great place it, to start, <laughs> start businesses. Well, it's an amazing place for business. We, uh, I actually came out of Silicon Valley. Um, took two years to determine what I thought the best new market for um, startups was going to be moving forward. I really think New York is it. We could have gone anywhere in the country, anywhere in the planet we wanted to. Right. But startups want to come here. They yeah. can get to every large corporation. They have an incredible amount of capital, particularly right. early stage capital. New York's the place to be. We're here. You're here. <laughs> We're so glad you stopped by. Glenn Argenbright, founding partner at Quake Capital. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Alan Zafrin back with us on this Friday. Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management. $131 billion in assets under management. Uh, Joining us once again from Palo Alto, California. Uh, Alan, uh, nice to have you here. Uh, I kind of asked you, because you know, my producer and I were talking before we got going uh, earlier today, and is it true that you guys are up about $10 billion in assets under management? I think we talked to you last uh, mid-September. Uh, yeah. Hey, Carol. Yeah. First <laughs> Republic uh, Wealth Management is truly explode, exploding in growth right now. It's a testament to the quality of the people here and the quality of the advice uh, that all the professionals here render. So but is it, is it appreciation or new money coming in? It's both. It's a lot of, frankly, it's a lot of organic growth, obviously, because assets can only appreciate so much in a quarter. Uh, there's been a tremendous growth within the wealth management business here at First Republic. Wow. Okay. Big Congratulations. Numbers. That's big. <laughs> Especially in a market that has been volatile as of late. 
Yeah, well, you know, look, volatility like this, frankly, allows us to earn our keep. Um, this is where you know, advice is well paid for, um, and that's not to argue that um, – Robo-advisors or passive strategies uh, are wrong. In fact, they very much have a place. But at times like this, oftentimes it's helpful to get advice, um, if nothing else, to keep you calm and stay on your long-term investment plan. Well, I'm glad you said that. You know, I ran into a hedge fund manager earlier who was lamenting, uh, you know, kind of the existential crisis that has gripped, shall we say, that entire industry. Uh, you know, the yeah. the thought being that, oh, volatility is going to be great uh, for the hedge fund business. It hasn't proven out uh, so far. You know, your strategies, you know, a more traditional uh, management strategy probably plays better here. So what do you see? What are you telling people, especially as I have to think customers are looking at if they are daring to look at their 401ks uh, or their investment accounts on a daily basis are, um, you know, maybe pouring themselves a stiff drink. Yeah, well, you know, the S&P 500 index is on track for its worst month in eight years, and I think the NASDAQ is the worst month since October of 2008. I'm afraid to cite that statistic. Well, here's what I'm telling people. The markets don't act in a linear, orderly fashion, but if you step back... Actually, it's kind of rational what's going on. As interest rates go up, all things equal, equities become on the margin a little less attractive. And and the reason is either prospectively you start looking at bonds as being on the margin a little more attractive than stocks, or when you're discounting the future cash flows of businesses at a higher discount rate, inherently they're worth less. Or if interest rates are going up on the margin, my profit margin, my business will drop a bit because my borrowing costs go up. Right. No matter how you no matter how you do it. So if you take one step further back, think of it this way. The market was trading at 20 times earnings. Now we're at 16 times earnings. So imagine I gave you a world that looked like this. You bought a stock. Pretend it's the market. You bought it at $20 a share, and it earned a dollar per share in earnings. And oh, by the way, it paid you 40 cents a share in a dividend. That's a 2% dividend yield. That's kind of what the market was, 20 times earnings of a 2% dividend yeah. yield. What if I tell you in the next five years, earnings are going to grow by 50%. So that same stock that earned a dollar per share is going to earn a dollar and 50 cents per share five years from now. However, we're not going to pay 20 times earnings when it rates go up. We're only going to pay 16 times earnings. So if you do the math, 16 times $1.50 five years from now from year is only $24 per share. So what I did is I bought a stock at $20 per share. I end up making $24 per share. That's only 20% appreciation. By the way, I got a dividend that started at 2%. It probably grew to 2.5% by five years out. So I earned about 10 or 11 or 12% on my dividend and 20% on my stock. I made about 30 to 32% in a world where earnings went up 50%. You know, it's five to five and a half percent of compounded annual return for the next five years. It's a lot less than the average of ten percent per year, but it still beats bonds and cash. So wait, that's wait. a world that's yeah yeah no finish. I'm just saying it's a world that recalibrates <laughs> down. Well, that's what I've, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Is this just kind of a revaluation of the market based on fundamentals like a higher rate environment and trade concerns and so on and so forth? Um, but it doesn't. But it presents maybe potentially a buying opportunity, not a cause for alarm. Well, that's what I believe. Uh, Richard Bernstein Associates came out with uh, a statistic and a commentary early in the week, and they said, look, 
even if you've had a peak in the rate of earnings growth, earnings are still growing. We're not in a profits recession. They went back and looked, and since 1991, we've had 11 instances where the rate of earnings uh, declined, but they were still growing. In 10 of those 11 times, the market went up, and on average, it was up 9% six months later and 18% hmm. a year later. So yeah. these corrections happen. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.